Well, good morning. Hope you're rejoicing in God's goodness, even in the midst of life's headaches. Lots of, lots of things to be encouraged by. I'm grateful for the testimony of Lighthouse Bible and trying to seeking to be an impact for God's glory in a desperately needy world. Grateful for the friendship that I have with people, leaders here in particular, but some of you I know, and just that we're co-laborers. And uh, my heart is always burdened for local churches and the people in them to be able to live lives that both in the near term in the sense of at a family level or but in the worldwide term live lives that put God's surpassing character on display and honor his name. So today we're going to look at these two key virtues for every Christ follower to pursue. Now this is going to be a odd sermon for me because I wanted to do it in a way that helps you kind of percolate in the that's not my change in setting, I don't think, but uh, percolate in the passages we're going to look at. So I'm going to have comments to make along the way. We're going to look at a lot of verses. So have your Bibles open. won't be a sword drill, but uh, a contest. But we're going to look at a lot of passages because I want you to see the biblical truths in a way that by reading through them and thinking about some of those details that it feeds the, the fire of the importance of these two virtues. I'll just pray for a minute, then we'll jump in. Thank you, Lord, for the brothers and sisters here at Lighthouse. I do pray that you would help both Pastor Mark and the elders, deacons, others who serve here faithfully to know your blessing and encouragement. I do pray that you would help us as we hear your word to be listeners. I do ask that you would make us clay in your hands through your spirit, drive it home to our hearts, including mine. I do ask you to hide your servant behind the cross. And if there is someone here who doesn't know you as their heavenly father, Christ is your savior, their savior, I do pray that you'd help them to sense the overwhelming weight of their sin and their hopelessness on their own and their need of the life-transforming power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. As Christ followers, we're very thankful for the salvation God has provided for us, taking our feet out of the miry clay and set them upon a rock and established our going. It's through that salvation that God has poured into our lives blessings that are both infinite and eternal. He's also given us his word, as our absolute authority and daily guide for every realm of life. And it's obvious that God's value system found in his word should be what determines our core values for life and should drive us to obey what he's commanded and avoid what he's prohibited. But here are some foundational questions. So, so what is truth? And the point of that question is, is not what Pilate said, but what is truth? How do we determine what's right and wrong and pursue that? And, and what is the direction of our life, your life, my life? What gives us the drive and the focus and what determines how we use our time and our resources? You see, there are lots of actions that are presented in Scripture as essential for us to pursue or avoid. If we counted all those times that a Bible preacher or teacher says, this is the most important thing for you to do in a sermon, there'd be a long list of those things that can be daunting. And it is. There are lots of commands and even prohibitions that are important. But what I'd ask you is, is what about virtues or heart values? Whether we're talking about actions on the one hand or values on the other, whatever God wants, according to his word, should always be best for us. That's for sure. 
And thinking about that, what really comes first in how we pursue a life that honors God's name, values, and actions? Well, what I'm going to try to labor this morning here is to demonstrate that our values are foundational. See, I'm not saying biblical values are more important than biblical actions. I mean, if we had biblical values that were kind of characterizing our life and we didn't do anything with those values, that isn't my ultimate goal. God expects both from us. I'm suggesting that biblical values provide the right foundation for biblical action. Biblical values kind of create a worldview for us that feeds, directs, motivates action, conduct. If we don't have a strong commitment to those biblical values, it's a bit bit of a veneer. It's activity, but not eternally significant. So in today's message, I want to share with you two foundational character traits, biblical values, that need to be very high on our list of core values. These two character traits seem to provide the foundation, building blocks, and impetus for God-glorifying conduct. And, and I'm sharing them with you because I'm convinced through various aspects of my life, I desperately need them. I try to have them in my life. I need to cultivate them. And, and this is not rocket science. You're not going to be shocked by these core values, and they are humility and dependence. And then my, my key idea here is that in order for us to pursue a, pursue a life that advertises our awesome God's surpassing character to the world around us, including those very near, we need to be always growing in the way our hearts and lives manifest humility and dependence. I want us to pay attention to who God is and see how that should motivate how we embrace those key values. And I'll try to point out applicational things along the way. So if we're going to look at God's example and then God's expectations of us. And what I want you to see in looking at the verses we're going to look at is if our eyes are on who God is and what he does, That should not only model for us why we can depend and why we should be humble, but motivate us as well. Because that's the life in a dog-eat-dog, me-first, I'm-the-boss world is radically different than what we see all around us. And that's part of the point, to be Christ-like. If God be the one who is put on display, he must increase, I must decrease. So, God's example, first of all, he is totally powerful and strong. Lots of examples. Turn over to Genesis 1. Now, I have my Bible here. I also have the verses in my notes. Think about creation. Verse 1, we have the kind of the title statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then we have the, the situation of the earth that God has brought into being that's unformed and unfilled, and the rest of the creative week is God forming and filling it. There's a whole lot of things we can say there, but I just want to look at verses 3, 6, and 7, and 9. So in verse 3, notice what God says. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. The divine fiat, the divine statement of intention and God's fulfillment of that intention. Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse between the water separating water from water, so God made the expanse, separated the water from under the, from under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. Verse 9, then God said, let the water appear under the sky, let the water in the sky be gathered in one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Again, this is an important area to pursue in another, another setting, but we're not talking about millions of years happening and how this came into being. God said it was so. God said it was so. God said it was so throughout the chapter. God is God of all power. God is a God who 
of course, in a moment, could have brought everything into existence. He created the, the universe. He, he created an unformed and unfilled globe with water and land underneath that water. He, he did it for a reason, because in the next six days, he's trying to demonstrate to his created world, to his, to his humanity, that he is the God who has control and ability and power over every element of creation. He's the powerful God. He brings it into being according to his intentions. More to say there. Another, another place I want you to turn is Deuteronomy 4, 32 to 35. Moses is preaching a sermon here in Deuteronomy 4. He, Deuteronomy is kind of a, a, a second presentation of God's expectations to his people as well as narratives about the need for a life of total loyalty to him, to the Lord. And he wants them to realize in the midst of what's going to come in chapter 5, a reminder of the Ten Commandments and this lofty commitment that he wants them to make, and they say they will do, that they will live lives of loyalty. He wants them to realize that having God at the center of their attention is an essential means to do that. So verse 32. Indeed, ask about the earlier days that preceded you, from the day God created man on the earth, from one end of the heavens to the other. This is like the, the research project of cosmic proportions. Everywhere, look everywhere to see if, has anything like this great event ever happened? Or has anything like it been heard of? And, and, and this that's so unparalleled is God, ultimately God, taking the people out of a powerful empire, pursuing a relationship with them and making them his own. Totally unparalleled. So as a people, verse 33, as a people heard God's voice speaking from the fire as you have and lived, it isn't that have people heard the voice speak out of the fire and died and you guys are the lucky ones. No, it says, has God ever propositionally, objectively, revealed his intentions in a relational setting with the people who then lived to carry out that life. I can just tell you, this is another side issue to be fun to pursue, in the ancient Near Eastern world, in all of the religious myths that are presented, and even some of the historical annals, but the religious myths that are presented, there is zero, zero objective propositional guidance on how to live their lives. They're going to get cuffed in the back of the head for sure if they don't make that God happy and feed them enough is the idea they're afraid of. But it's unparalleled to have a God who not only pursues a relationship with people, but provides them objective propositional revelation to help them know how to live the life he's called them to live. Verse 34 is God attempted to go and take a nation as his own out of another nation, i.e. what he just did with the ten plagues in Egypt, delivering them from one of the most powerful empires of the world at that time. Totally unexpected humanly. Or has God ever attempted to go and take a nation as his own out of another nation by trials, signs, wonders, and war, by a strong hand and an outstretched arm, by terrors, as the Lord did for you in Egypt before your eyes? I mean, the one, one of the many things you could conclude from watching the ten plagues is like, wow. That was amazing. It's a powerful God who promises big and delivers big. And all that he did there was part of a promise he made back in Genesis 12 to Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you into a nation and I'm going to give you a land. As well as make you a blessing to all peoples of the earth. But look at verse 35. You were shown these things. Hearing God's voice out of the fire, giving propositional revelation. You have, he's pursuing you to pursue this relief. He's extricated you from a powerful empire through his his strength. You were shown these things so that you would know not that you're special but that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. And that should be the impetus to live the life he's called you to live. He is powerful. Amazingly powerful. Turn over to 2 Kings 19 and again you can imagine there are lots of passages I could have included but Mark said he had to get done by two. I'm teasing. 2 Kings 19, 32 to 36. Again, lots of verses here. Sorry, we get excited. But, so we have uh, 
in this passage, Sennacherib, the king of powerful, the powerful Assyrian Empire. In, in their heyday, they beat everybody they went after. So they crunched everybody that they, they, they wanted to make subject to their power. And in, in the verses before we're looking at here, they mocked Hezekiah and the people for even the thought of trusting their, their wimpy gods. Where were the gods of this place and that place and the other place? Just roll over and let us beat you real pulp. But notice verse 32. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or build up an assault ramp, assault ramp against it. He will go back on the road that he came and he will not enter this city. This is the Lord's declaration. I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake, for the sake of my servant David. God has a plan he's bringing to pass. It isn't the, the high five, you guys are the best in the world. You're obeying me totally faithfully. No, there, there are a lot of losers. There, there are a lot of rebels and hypocrites. But God's bringing this plan to pass, and he's going to do it for his glory to demonstrate who he is. So verse 35. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, they were all left. There were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and left. He returned home and lived in Nineveh. In his uh, Taylor prism, or the Sennacherib prism, he describes what he had done. He had, uh, he had kind of destroyed 46 fortified cities in Judah. He had sent off over 100,000 Jews in exile to Assyria at that time. He defeated a mighty fortress of Lachish down in the southwest. He had Hezekiah caged like a bird in Jerusalem. Well, what doesn't he tell us? <laughs> now this part, that God stymied his efforts, that the God of all power intervened in human history in a unique way. Normally the battles with the, with the opposing powers, God says, go out and fight them. Grab your bow and your arrow and your spears and your javelins and all that. Engage the enemy in battle and trust me to show myself mighty. To multiply your efforts and give you victory against a, a greater host than you could ever hope to defeat on your own. This is one of those occasions where it's God in an undiluted way. His power is on display. He is not a promise big in verses 32 to 35 and deliver zero God. No, this is the only campaign ever recorded in Assyrian history where the Assyrians walked away without a victory. Of course, they don't advertise that in their annals, but there are other indications of that too. He is a powerful God. Now, this is going to I'm going to make this clear a little later as well, but why, that, why is it important? Because he's one on whom we can depend. If he calls us to be dependent, it isn't being dependent on the most unreliable person in the world. It's the God who has all power. Well, look what else. He is also... Second point, letter B, he is totally faithful and dependable. Lots of verses here. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him to keep his commands. The point is those, and there's a bigger background here, but those who are pursuing and embracing this relationship with him by faith, pursuing lives of wanting that relationship, to, who, to love him and keep his commands, in the context of that committed relationship, the Lord 
is the faithful God who keeps his promise. And even in the Old Testament with a, a nation in view, not just individual believers in view, in Deuteronomy 4 he says that God does not forget his covenant. He's faithful. Not a fair weather promise big and deliver nothing God. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are entirely just a faithful God. Without prejudice, he is righteous and true. I'll give you time to find Lamentations 3. Find Jeremiah, go to the end. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. Lamentations is likely written by Jeremiah, and it, it, it describes the angst that followed the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. And all the agonies, the horrors of months of siege and all the nastiness of life that shows up in those kinds of crucible experiences and then the devastation of the city and the death and the removal of exiles dragged off to Babylon. All that angst, a beautiful city decimated. The writer says in a whole section that's beautiful, he says, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And what's the context of Lamentations again? What's just happened? Well, it's devastation of Jerusalem. It's exile of tens of thousands to Babylon. That isn't the end of God's story for his people. Because of what he, taught, what he, what he presented through Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, and he said, I'm, I'm pursuing a relationship with you that you're supposed to respond by faith, but regardless as my chosen people, and you've said all that you have said we will do, I'm presenting before you an option that you can be characterized by covenant loyalty from the inside out as a, as a gratitude, pursuing a life that honors my character and, and be blessed in, in, in abundant ways. But you can also be committed to a life of covenant treachery in an unending way, constantly going down that road of covenant disobedience and Eventually, it'll exhaust my patience, and I'm going to bring covenant curse, covenant judgment on you. So what he does in, in Jerusalem with the Babylonians, it wasn't like he got defeated. It's a refining event. It's an event that God is using to help God's people realize that covenant disobedience isn't the best. Obeying God is always the best. But in the end, it's not the end of God's story for his people because he's made a commitment to them in his covenant that he will bring to pass. Why? Because he's a faithful God. He will do what he says. Judgment is not the end of God's story for his people. Back to Joshua 20, 21.45. Joshua is the, the, the nation of Israel has broken the backbone of Canaanite resistance. They're in charge, if you will. Not every pocket of Canaanites has been evicted or wiped out. And Israel's going to, the tribes, individual tribes were called to, to do that. They didn't trust that God would be the same God he was for the nation. And the book of Judges is the result. But he's telling us here in, in 21, in, in the wake of that backbone of resistance broken and the, really the city system is no longer in place and Israel's in charge of the land. Joshua 21, 45. Not one. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Even though this verse doesn't have the word faithfulness in it, God's faithfulness is highly evident in keeping every promise to his people. He's a faithful and dependable God. Psalm 33.4. We'll go to 36 after that. Turn over to Psalm 33.4. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. Every single action God takes is 
sure and steady. Every word he speaks is always good and true. Faithful and dependable. Turn over a couple pages to 36 verse 5. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. God's faithfulness is immeasurable. It's like infinite. No end. No beginning. First Corinthians 1. Paul is writing there and he's writing to a church that has all kinds of deep issues. He wants them to realize that God called them to a, a life that doesn't match what they're doing now in general. In verses 8 and 9, this is what his hope is, his desire for them, knowing that God will enable them. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into the fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's faithful to enable you to live the life he's called you to live. You need to change the direction of your life and stop pursuing the things you are at Corinth. God is faithful to help you live the life that honors him even to the end. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 Many of you have memorized this. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. He is faithful in his character, and his actions come out as a result of that. And then 1 John 1, 9 that we most have memorized, if we confess our sins, he is undependable. No, he's faithful and just, righteous, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God is powerful. God is faithful and dependable. He is perfectly humble. And with, with, with humility, we focus on Jesus who took on human flesh and lived among human beings because that's where it shows up with most clarity and most uniquely. Just for a minute, what is humility? Humility can define, be defined as a place of entire dependence on God. Do you see the inter, interlocking nature of these virtues? I'll talk about it at the end. Humility can be defined as the place of entire dependence on God because it's not dependence on you. There's nothing in us of any ultimate value that can provide grounds for pride. Humility is that sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make way for God to be all in our lives. Not about us. To you, O Lord, to you be the glory. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. You know, when I talk about humility here, I'm not saying you guys are worthless bums. Because I'm with you, right? I'm in that too. No, I'm, I'm saying that we all bring things to the table, gifts, skills, abilities, strengths. Praise God for that. It's part of who he's made us to be. That's a blessing. But in the end, what you and I can accomplish for God's glory is not about us. It's an awesome God who has seen fit to work through a, a cracked and perfect clay vessel to do things much more than I could ever do and you could ever do. And it's realizing that we don't revel in who I am and what, what I can do and the strengths I have. It's the amazing God of mercy and grace who sees fit to take my puny little dust and ashes skills in a way that impacts eternity. So I don't want you to walk out here thinking, I think that you guys are all losers. I mean, left to ourselves we are, but there's, God, there's blessings here at Lighthouse Bible Church I'm thankful for. P. 
people who are giving their lives to serve and to try to grow in Christ and shape the lives of little ones that are their privilege to parent and on and on. But it's not with a focus on us. Because what I bring to the table isn't ultimately valuable or important. It's only used in God's hands that God can do the things he needs to use. All right, so let's, so in the end, the best way to see humility in the Godhead is to look at Jesus. In Zechariah 9.9, Zechariah 9.9, in the book of Zechariah, the Lord in the last chapters is helping look to the future. And in, in Zechariah 9, it's heading toward some statements that are really, really important. The, 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 there's going to come a day when they're going to look at him whom they have pierced. Talks about the Lord returning to Mount Zion to wipe out the forces of the Antichrist and establish his kingdom on earth. But in Zechariah 9 9, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, riding on a white steed with all kinds of glitz and glamour. <laughs> no, no, he's not. Humble and riding on a donkey. On the colt, the foal of a donkey. And the world's kind of upside down. Most rulers would come into a scenario where they're being introduced in a unique way with all the glitz and glamour to impress the people that they're the big dog. They're the real one. And, when, and by the way, when you, when you look at this verse, you go to Matthew 21, 1 to 10, and you have... Jesus sends his disciples to get that big white steed with all the glitz. No, he says, based on Zechariah 9 that he quotes, the disciples did, went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey in the cold. Once they laid the robes on him, and he sat on them. And so he rides down on the cold of a donkey. But he's recognized as the deliverer. That's what matters. Hosanna. Deliver us. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, deliver us in the highest heavens. So he doesn't come even as the God of gods in human flesh, full of himself to flaunt his strength and his power and his majesty. It shows up in concrete ways of living among mankind that is oddly, I mean, Uniquely characterized by selflessness, by humility. Matthew 11, 29 and 30. This is really convicting. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Pretty much everybody, in some sense. But this is really a salvation verse. Ultimately, we're... He wants people to realize, and the Pharisees included, that they're trying to do things on their own and they're tuckered out. They're realizing they don't have what it takes. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Not just for eight hours, but or six for some of you. I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me because I am... Gentle and lowly, gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because it's a shared load. He's gentle and humble. Gentle and lowly. This is the dumbest story in the world, but I was getting the real ID thing at the DMV and you do all the stuff ahead of time to tell you're going to have this kind of gold-plated experience, you know, this, this enhanced experience of going through quickly, and I get to the DMV, and my gold-plated experience was to get in around the line about three-quarters around the building. And I'm in line, and, and uh, you know, there are people that come and move people up out of the line for some reason, and I'm kind of getting a bad attitude. And guess what book I'm reading? Gentle and Lowly. <laughs> And all of a sudden, just the Lord, with his spirit, hit me right between the eyes. 
You know, who are you, Grisani? You're a worm and a wretch. I mean, you're a bum. You're, you're a nobody, ultimately. There's a, there's a God who took on human flesh and came to earth to live an unparalleled sinless life and to die a horrific death and to rise from the dead. The God of all power went through that, living humbly for me. You better get your act together. <laughs> this is the dumbest thing in the world. Let this eat at me because, and so I, what I'm saying is that we live life and there are those frustrating circumstances or, you know, somebody doesn't treat us like we want to be treated or our wife doesn't respond like we would like to or our kids do something and it's like, ah! And we have to realize, no, no, it's, how, how can I manifest humility and gentleness? It's not about me. If God's truth is addressed, then I need to help lovingly Help them understand that truth, right? But it just is convicting who Christ is and what he did as God, very God in human flesh. Um, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. I'm going to have to move a little faster here. I'm getting the mark, stare. You know, I'm, he's not staring at me. I'm teasing he told me about the trap door here. I've got to be careful of. So uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. So make your own attitude that of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God and not like pretend form, but he had God's nature, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. He instead, so he didn't hold on to that. He, he came to earth and took on human flesh. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taken on the likeness of men, and when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself. Not just in the DMV line, or the dumbest frustration in the world. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. For this reason God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every, of, of those in heaven and and on earth, and they're under under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One last one, and I'm going to go to God's expectations. Mark 10, 42 to 45, there's a great passage in Matthew 20. It does something a little different, but in Mark 10, 42 to 45, Jesus called them, his disciples, over to him and said to them, because they were kind of jockeying for who gets the right seat, who gets the left seat, who's, who's going to be kind of exalted. God called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, people, and their men of high positions exercise power over them, the people, but it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be slave to all. Talk about an upside-down world. It isn't pretend stuff, but the point is, it isn't about me. It's about how can I serve? How can I point to the Lord? How can I be kind? How can I bend over backwards as a way of demonstrating his character? For even the Son of Man, Jesus, God, very God, human flesh, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Well, so I need to hurry, and I'm probably going to have to just read some of these, and you have the verses there. You're going to hear them. The point is that we talk about the biblical values that I think are so important for me to have in my life in order to live a life that points to him, to love my wife well, to shepherd my kids well, to be a brother in Christ who is an encouragement to those around me. I have to keep before me that we have a God who is amazingly powerful, who is faithful and dependable, who is humble, even though he's the God of all power. And that should then fill my heart with the desire to put his character on display in the way I live my life. And even I live it well for his glory. Because a person who is not humble, is not dependable, is the worst person to be around, right? It just causes division and dissension and pain and agony. And we want to be a sweet aroma, not only to God, but to others. So God's expectations in our relationship with him, if we're his children, first of all, it's humility. 
And our hard attitude is that it's not about me. So Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 16. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years of the wilderness when you're being punished for your treachery at Kadesh Barnea. He could have just wiped you out, but he's putting to death over those 40 years the generation of those that were adults. But he's doing this as mercy too. So God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness as a tutorial so that he might humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He fed you in the wilderness, verse 16, with manna that your fathers had not known in order to humble and test you so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. What he wants from us is he wants us to cultivate this attitude that is nature to our, contrary to our natures, and that's humility. Psalm 27, 9, 9, he leads the humble in what is right. He teaches them his way. Psalm 34, 2, I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Powerful verse here, Isaiah 66, 2. I think I added this one. It's not in your outline. My hand made all these things, and so they all came into being. This is the Lord's declaration. So it's the God who created the universe is talking. I will look favorably on this kind of person. Boy, I want to listen to that. One who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. So that's hard attitude and it's conduct. It's all about God and others, not about me. Again, various examples I've written down here, but in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, when he says, therefore, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all, do everything for God's glory. And then we think about not just toward God in our conduct, putting him on display, but toward others, back to Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look out, should, everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's humility. And that's a hard attitude and conduct. How about dependence? We must depend on the dependable one. So what's dependence? It's a clear recognition that God is who he says he is. He's the great, awesome, all-powerful, all-knowing, incomparable God. He chooses to provide love, grace, mercy, wisdom for his subjects and followers. He provides lost sinners with life-transforming salvation, provides enablement for those who embrace that salvation. He's absolutely reliable, will bring to pass all that he promises. So we understand, we recognize who, that God is who he says he is. That's an important part of depending on him. Second, trusting in or depending on him should not be a periodic or last resort for his followers. I'll call you when I need you, God. I got this. Depending on God to be and to do what he promised to be and to do should be our first and daily resort. Depending on God does not mean we have no personal responsibility. We need to make wise decisions, cultivate godly disciplines, practice other God-honoring virtues. But it should be an always thing. Lord, help me. I pray this regularly for me and for folks coming to my office. Lord, I pray that through your spirit you would help me to be and to do so much more than I can be and do on my own because I don't have what it takes to live the life I'm called to live. And the third is I'm transitioning to the third, and this is really essential. We must fully recognize that we don't have what it takes to please God or to pursue God honoring life he calls us to on our own. As lofty as your desire are, desire may be to honor the Lord, to be good parents, to love your spouse, to be a witness of the lost. If we're on our own, focused on our skills, abilities, we, don't, we, we can't accomplish what God wants to accomplish through us. It's not that we can almost do what God wants and just need a divine nudge to push us over the top. What God calls us to is so lofty 
that we cannot live how he wants us to live without the enablement he provides through his spirit. Praise God. He does not leave us on our own. He longs to enable us to be and to do so much more than we could be and do on our own. But we need to figure out that I desperately need his enablement through his spirit. I'm not walking through life able to live out ultimate values that I'm called to live out. And beyond that, his word serves as the ultimate priority for our value system and the things we give priority in our lives. So, two areas of life. The one is salvation. I'm going to read just a couple of verses you know well. John 3, 14 to 16. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up exalted, put on display, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Believes, depends on. John 5, 24, I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me, dependence, trust, has eternal life, and will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. And then daily life, you have salvation, then daily life, Christ-like living, facing challenges. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not rely on your own understanding, think about him in all your ways, and he will guide you on the right paths. Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield, my heart trusts in him and I am helped, therefore my heart rejoices and I praise him with my song. Psalm 37, 3, and five, 3 to 5. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires because they match his. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. All of those are involving a, a, a dependence and humility. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock and making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth and a pray, hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord because of that life-transforming impact. And has not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies. In the, and there's lots of other verses here, but... In 2 Corinthians 12, 7b to 10, Paul says, Therefore, so that I could not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so I would not exalt myself. So he's saying I was taken to the third heaven, doing a lot of things. I could be full of myself. I could exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take. So he sent this thorn in the flesh to him. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. But he said... No, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Hmm. Therefore, it gets tougher, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest and may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and pressures because of Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Longer story here, I need to wrap up. And that is that um, I think Paul was saying something that said here in Isaiah 40 as well, that he exchanged. He exchanged his weakness for God's strength. Sometimes we come to life in different situations and our hands are full with all that we think we are to be the godly husband, wife, good parent, you know, witness of the lost, good brother in Christ. And we realized, Paul realized that what he had in his hands, all he was, even as the great apostle, all that he had in his hands was dust and ashes, and God could then replace that with enablement to do and be much more than he could have on his own. He exchanged, he wanted to be weak so he could be enabled by Christ to live the life he was called to live. Now, when you think about trust, and I have to move on here, but trust is something that affects our backward, looking backward and looking forward. And you all have things in your life that you may regret or forgiveness that was granted or some bad decision you made. 
But we, we need to depend on God for the forgiveness he's given us. And let that be true in our hearts. And not kind of re, kind of stir the pot. We need to embrace even someone else's past forgiveness. That we depend. Forward, we, we, we trust God for wisdom and direction. We, in, in, the, in the many unknowns of life, the things that, that, that Ted was praying for, for folks here in the church, job loss, health issues. You know, lots of issues. We trust God to enable us, to give us strength, to provide for our needs in a way that would honor his name. The Spirit's enablement in our daily life. We trust him. Lord, I, I just, you know, I, I regularly pray, even before coming here, that he would use me in a way that would be beyond what I could do on my own, that we would, through his Spirit, use his word in powerful ways. Strength to honor God and make biblically driven choices in an increasingly hostile world and, and so on. So there are scores of other passages we could have looked at. However, I hope you've seen with me and how, how important these character traits are to God and why they should play a major role in our lives. Humility and dependence are linked character traits. The guy, who's, the guy or the girl who's humble will be dependent. The one who realizes who he is before an all-powerful God will be humble. We should depend on God because we realize we don't have what it takes to live the awesome life he expects of us, and we should be humble because of what Jesus did as the God, very God, who took on human flesh. And I'm a worm and a wretch, and I have nothing to boast in except him. So I can be grateful that God helps me put two feet in front of a foot in front of another, and I can come to hang out with people I love up here at Lighthouse, and try to bring God's word to bear and all of those blessings. I'm grateful for that, but I realize that it's not about me. And so my, my challenge to you is, is that God through his word would convict us about our need to keep growing and pursuing Christ-likeness as we commit ourselves to being humble and dependent before our God and on our God. Let's pray. Thank you, I, Lord. I, I thank you so much that you use cracked clay vessels for your glory and halting words of a speaker. Thank you that your word is the power. And I pray in the words the, they were able to read and the ones they heard me read would help us understand how Bible-wide this is and how you as a God model for us things that should motivate our conduct. You are amazingly all-powerful that should encourage our intention to depend and to be humble. You are dependable and faithful yourselves, the Trinity, on whom we can depend. And you are Jesus Christ who took our human flesh, was humble. As a result of that, Lord, I pray that in our human relationships, besides our relationship with you, as your subjects in our human relationships, husband, wife, parent, child, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would show the world around us that we're your disciples by the way we love, care for, look after each other as we depend on you. In Jesus' name, amen.